Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm sorry, yes, Matt Chorley is still on holiday. Uh, he's at a special home purposely built for resting broadcasters. It's Kay Burley's garden, I think. I'm Luke Jones, uh, sitting in all week. Uh, today we have got the incredible story of uh, one black police officer, uh, police chief, and how he tried to stamp out racism in his force in the US, what his thoughts are on the Chauvin trial. Also, we'll hear from the man in charge of statistics in the UK, Sir Ian Dyer who runs the Office for National Statistics on the on the pandemic, on the census, and also on questions about sex and race around the country as well. First, though, a new pairing of columnists, Rosamund Irwin and Robert Crampton, who we're calling Crampwin. had that good news about the Moderna vaccine but with uh, which is starting to be rolled out in, in Wales today but just um, a few minutes ago we heard from the Welsh health minister and he was telling me that that all of this chatter as he put it around blood clots and the Oxford vaccine he worried that it might make it harder uh, for people who are already reluctant to take up the vaccine mm. is, is that something that you worry about Robert? Uh, a little bit although the stats so far on in terms of cancelled appointments uh either for first or second jab, indicate that people, uh, older people certainly, are not concerned about this chatter, as uh, as the guy put it. I mean, I thought he put it very well. There's there's always, there's, a, there's always a balance of risk in anything that you do. The balance of risk uh, in this instance is absolutely clear. Uh, mm. There's no evidence that, of a causal link between the AstraZeneca vaccine and blood clots. Uh, even... Even if there, even if there were, then the risk from getting COVID is much greater. One in 150 people who get COVID die, and of uh, the people vaccinated in Britain so far, one in two million has have died of blood clots, which may not actually be caused by the vaccine. Mm. So it's pretty clear to me. And also, you know, getting one thing that getting COVID give, does is give you is raise your risk of getting blood blood clots so it's absolutely clear to me that this chatter chatter is all it is uh and that any sensible people will continue to 
uh, have their appointments, you know, meet their appointments yeah. and have that have the jab. I mean, the problem arises in younger people because it seems that while they have an absolutely negligible chance of dying from COVID, they might have a slightly raised risk of these these blood clots being provoked by the vaccine. So that is a different issue. But, but, but chatter is one thing, isn't it? And obviously there are lots of sensible people out there, but Rosamond, there are also lots of not very sensible people or people who maybe just aren't paying attention to the news very much, who maybe are already worried about vaccines and if they just hear a bit of news which might put a bit more doubt in their mind, it could push them away from the vaccine centre even more. Yeah, I think we should be positive that in the UK, actually, when you compare us with countries like the US and, and France, there is less opposition to vaccines. Mm. Um Anyway, so, so we've actually done very well at rolling out this programme. What I would say is that they think these blood clots, you know, are, are being seen in younger women in particular, younger people and younger women. Now, of course, those aren't the people who are most at risk from COVID. And I've seen speculation this morning, and, and this would seem sensible if they do establish there is a causal link, which, as Robert rightly says, they haven't. Um, they could think about saying, well, we've got other vaccines um, you know, perhaps older people could have the AstraZeneca if um, if there's less risk to them. But if but we should be looking at giving younger women in particular, or perhaps younger people generally, um, a different vaccine. You know, we we do have other options there, and it might be one possibility. Um, I, I I do think that one of the things about this is that young people have sacrificed a huge huge amount when it isn't the risk largely isn't for them now of course they may be doing that for family members they may be very civic-minded and they may not mind that but I do think there have been extraordinary sacrifices taken by the young and if we find that there is a heightened risk to their health from having the vaccine obviously there's a greater good element of them taking a vaccine i.e they won't spread the disease so easy we hope I mean we don't we haven't quite established that have we but but that they that's a hope there but um, if they do find it, I, I do think they should try to accommodate it so that younger people do not have this vaccine. If there is even a even a small, you know, even if the link um, is if it is there, mm. even if it affects relatively few people. But, but of course, this is all important, isn't it? Who takes up the vaccine and especially younger people, because it's younger people who are most likely to be transmitting the disease around the country. And if we want to unlock as has been laid out especially you know in the roadmaps in, in the various uh, nations of the uk robert we do we do need people just to crack on with it good point uh, i think if, the, if, the, if there are stocks of other vaccines available which uh, which i understand there are then uh, it shouldn't be uh, beyond the wit of uh, the authorities to to offer different vaccines to uh, to the young if the if the link is established I mean, the main thing is to keep the vaccine rollout going. Uh, it's gone, as, as Rosamond says, it's gone very well so far and we need it to continue. And then hopefully then a lot of these issues around passports and certificates, which we may, I think we were going on to talk about, will sort of melt away because uh, the vast majority of us will have been vaccinated. Yeah, and there is, well, on that, um, reporting in The Times, uh, Henry Zeffman saying that uh, Downing Street is hinting that uh, coronavirus certificates could be needed in high street shops this summer and that mm. seems to be the, the question doesn't it Rosamond in terms of even some of the uh, more hardline uh, conservative MPs and Lib Dems and things who are against Covid passports seem to accept it for some things maybe international travel it's a question of it's a question of where they're used isn't it yeah I think that's absolutely right I think 
your big events, um, it feels like more of a choice there, doesn't they? Nobody has to go to a festival. Obviously, it, it is, you know, discriminatory, actually, if we say some people can't. But I think we can accept these are extraordinary times and we have all made extraordinary sacrifices. Um, to enter shops, you see, I think the government will back away from this because I, I, I looked up before I came on air the um, advice to pregnant women um, at the moment uh, about around the vaccine. And it's that you should not routinely have the vaccine if you're pregnant. Obviously, if you're at heightened risk from COVID, um, then then the government tells you to have it. Um, but but pregnant women are not going to routinely have it. Are they really going to say that pregnant women are not going to be allowed to go into into shops, clothing shops, um, that would fit, or, or whatever it is? I mean, you, you, we don't know which shops it's going to apply to yet because the government hasn't really sort of even sounded that one out. So I think that'd be hugely problematic. Um, and, and obviously it isn't just pregnant women. I, I just want to use that as an example because that's actually a decent percentage of the population. There's also other people who can't have the vaccine. Now, of course, they could have a test yes. and therefore, you know, say, well, hang on, I'm, I'm COVID free. But apparently those will only last 24 hours. Um, so as in, uh, you know, you'll only be allowed to 24 hours after a test. Um, that, that seems like a mess to me. So I, I can't imagine once they've looked into this, they'll feel able to do that. Although somebody has pointed out, and I haven't checked this, but I think in Mexico, um, pregnant women aren't allowed into shops at the moment. So some countries have done this. So it's, yeah, so it could be on the cards. And on that point about negative tests, the uh, the Telegraph has been speaking to the SNP's Westminster leader, Ian Blackford, who said that uh, the SNP MPs uh, in Parliament would would vote, but would back the certification scheme as long as it included people's negative test results. So it wasn't just relying on people who were who were vaccinated. But I guess that might be possible, Robert, if it was doing the the lateral flow style tests, of which in England from Friday, you know, all adults are going to get two of those free a week. So as long as you only decided to go shopping two days a week, maybe, and, and pop it into your app, that might work. That would be the compromise. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, that sounds reasonable to me. But yeah, and, and that's the sort of thing. It's about um, h- how reasonable it is, and and actually, I don't know where, where do you draw the line in shops in terms of uh, you know, Rosamond, you were saying no one's got a right to go to a festival, but I guess does anyone necessarily have a have a right to walk around trying to think of what sort of ludicrous luxury shop is um, that you don't have an, an ideal name for? Harrods, yeah. Is there a right to go? Is there a right to go to Harvey Nicks? I don't. I don't think there is, but I do think at the same time. We are in a situation, I mean, they've also got to think about how policeable that is, right? Mm. What are you going to do? Are you going to have somebody on the door saying, you know, in every shot saying, uh, you know, show me your vaccine passport? Well, I mean, obviously, lots of these shops do have sort of bouncer types, don't they, because um, of theft. But um, but what happens if, if people sort of fight them over it and say this is ludicrous or, or say, oh, I've forgotten my phone at home? You know, you know, it does it does actually look quite tricky to police with shops, whereas big events, you can see because they're going through security anyway for most of these things. You can sort of see, you know, big sporting games and music concerts, that type of thing. You can sort of see how it would be a lot easier to do that. Um, I just don't think it's going to be feasible. I, I suspect, so Michael Gove is looking at this. And, and I, one of the elements I find really fascinating about this is that lots of the um, conservatives we have in power used to think of themselves as liberal Tories, you know, Gove and, um, and obviously Boris Johnson. And mm. they have backed so far away from liberalism. And of course, because this is a pandemic, that's not particularly surprising. But, you know, what does the new, what, what does this government 
you know, have to say on, on, on sort of civil liberties now. Well, we've given up basically everything. Um, I, I, um, I really wonder going forward. I mean, this to me feels like too big a demand on people um, when like, people have yeah. already done too which much. Is, which is why I think they're hoping it will just go away. I think, I suspect that's Michael Gove's brief. Keep, you know, yeah. make this go away for a couple of months until, until it's not a problem anymore. Mm-hmm. Like you say, you don't. It's not. You don't want bouncers denying pregnant women entry to shops. It's not a good look, is it? So, uh, I'd suspect that a lot of this will melt away come June, July. Uh, not least because it's going to get warmer, hopefully one day. If not, albeit not at the moment. And uh, so the the, the 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 you know the 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 prevalence of the of the virus is going to plummet anyway. You're listening to the Red Box Politics podcast. That was Rosamond Irwin and Robert Crampton. Crampwin, our columnist. Up next, we're talking numbers. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In the pandemic, in policymaking, in life generally, generally, statistics are important, not least for just knowing what's actually happening in the country. Professor Sir Ian Diamond is the UK's national statistician and head of the Office for National Statistics. He's live with us this morning. Hello, Sir Ian. Good morning. Thank you very much for your time. Um, later on this afternoon, you're giving uh, one of the one of the Turing lectures, and uh, in the description for it, you, um, you or, or whoever wrote it for you, I guess, said uh, that data statistics and analysis has never been more pertinent for policymakers. And I wonder, obviously, that's the case during the pandemic, but I mean broader than that, um, how pertinent? Well, I think it's absolutely pertinent, and uh, just for clarity, I wrote that, um, and uh, I believe fundamentally that whether one is making decisions about um, the best way to um, improve skills across the country, whether one's making uh, data, making information about the best way to um, level up different areas, one needs information uh, in order to base one's decision. And evidence-informed policy has to be much better than an evidence uninformed policy always. And having given, got the evidence to make a policy, you then need to monitor the progress of that policy and you need data and evidence for it. So frankly, we live in a society where it is really good that we understand the need for timely, effective, reliable, and independently gathered data. And that's mm. what the Office for National Statistics does. And I wonder in your experience with politicians of all stripes, do they recognise that? 100%. I've been really super impressed by the way 
that uh, politicians right across the political spectrum have been really keen to um, get properly calculated independent data and to use them uh, in their decision making. I wonder, did you have a good friend in uh, Dominic Cummings? Because, of course, this was his uh, big thing uh, during his time as the Prime Minister's senior advisor, wasn't it? T- turning uh, a part of the Cabinet Office into a kind of data room where they could see live streaming data on, on screens about what's actually happening in, in terms of policy with raw numbers. I imagine you must have got on well. Dominic Cummings clearly um, had a, a vision and a real belief um, in data, and I welcome that. But at the same time, he's not alone. And uh, right across government, there are many, many people who really fundamentally mm. understand the need to improve the availability and the insight that data can bring on a daily basis. And of course, that's been incredibly important during this pandemic. I wonder uh, if you take us back 12 months, um, how has how is our ability in terms of recognising what's happening with coronavirus actually changed? Yeah, I think we've done a number of, of things. I mean, firstly, uh, we have set up one of probably the only really big national surveillance study. Uh, and so we publish every Friday estimates for all four nations uh, of, of the United Kingdom. Um, we publish estimates of the prevalence of the virus. But increasingly over time, we've pivoted that to also take very large numbers of blood samples so that we can look at antibodies and that's been able to um, help us to understand the really impressive um, increase uh, that we have seen in antibodies through uh, the vaccination program. So that's one thing. Secondly, we've looked enormously to speed up many of the indicators and information that we produce and to do so on a really quick basis. So weekly surveys uh, on behaviour. We've improved the speed at which we uh, produce our economic indicators so that uh, our decision makers have the ability to have the very, very latest data. And we've also innovated sometimes. So, for example, we can't, during a pandemic, have a field force out, um, for example, looking at prices to calculate inflation. And so we've used innovative data sources in order to do that. And you mentioned there just a few key things in the pandemic, which I just want to ask you about. First of all, in terms of your um, analysis and data gathering on behaviour, um, anecdotally, you get the whiff that there is more rule breaking and more rule bending as we've gone on through the pandemic and increasingly so recently. Is, does that add up with the data that, you, that you're collecting? No, that, that it doesn't really um, follow. What we have seen increasingly is people understanding what the rules are and reporting to us that they are following the rules. Hmm. And what about in terms of case numbers? What are you seeing in the in the surveys that you run uh, testing thousands of, of households? A few weeks ago, you were sure. warning that a third wave was, was almost certainly on the way here in the UK. Is that still the case? Mm. What, I, what I've said is that um, we certainly have seen a major reduction from the, the heights at the beginning of January, um, a, a steady reduction. We had a little kind of flattening off when uh, the schools went back, but our most recent data shows a continued uh, reduction. 
um, in, in England um, and, and similarly in, in Scotland and Wales with a slight uptick um, that we're looking at carefully in Northern Ireland. So I think we are in a good place uh, at the moment. Uh, if one combines these reductions with um, the very, very impressive vaccine rollout and the, the antibodies uh, in uh, people, um, in older people that have come clearly from that, uh, then I think we are now in a position as we move into summer to be able to um, move forward. Now, what will happen uh, in um, the autumn? Um, it seems to me, as Chris Whitty has said on many occasions, uh, this is not a virus that is going to go away completely and we are going to have to learn to live with it. And I defer to Chris Whitty uh, on matters such as this. Mm. And in terms of the, the, the data that you said you're picking up in terms of testing, the impact of vaccines in terms of t testing people for antibodies, what are you seeing in that data? It's been hugely, hugely, hugely impressive. Uh, when we look at people over 50 uh, and we look at the trends uh, over uh, the, the past um, three and a half months, uh, what we see very clearly uh, is a steady and rapid increase uh, in um, antibodies. We do see still a little uh, vaccine hesitancy amongst some groups, um, but that is declining too in all our surveys. Uh, and so uh, I really do think this has been an incredibly impressive uh, rollout of the vaccination programme. And we are seeing the results very clearly uh, in um, the antibodies that exist mm. in our population. And stop me if this is something that you, um, it's not something that you're necessarily looking at or the data, but I just wonder in terms of, the vaccine rollout itself, but we're always hearing about the the, the issue with supply and, and Sage, which you uh, sit on as part of your job, uh, part of your job, um, did warn, uh, or we at least saw minutes of it uh, yesterday about um, vaccine rates dropping off in England somewhat. Um, I can't comment um, on that. Um, vaccine rollout is not part of my. Yeah. Uh, brief, what I can say is that we have seen uh, very, very high levels of uptake. Uh, and clearly, as the vaccine minister has said, we are having a, a month roll of second uh, doses. And that seems to me to be important. In terms of uh, the, the data on deaths, there was a period where we were all glued to the um, the, the excess death uh, figure in terms of people who, who had died um, with COVID-19. Um, how does that compare or how is it looking to compare with uh, previous uh, winters of, of flu deaths? Because, you know, lots of people even just here this morning when we mentioned that you were going to be on were tweeting us saying, asking about flu deaths and how it compares. Because that's something which people are, especially as we get to the point where we want to unlock more, people are asking the question of, are we, you know, might we be in a position where the excess deaths are, quote, acceptable? Well, I think it's worth saying at any level, um, every death is a source of great sadness to family and friends and to everybody, I think, in our population. Um, what we have clearly seen in the last few weeks is a reduction in the number of 
excess deaths. And let's remember that when we talk about excess deaths, we're talking about the number of deaths mm. over and above a five-year average. So we have actually now had, in the last couple of weeks, um, deaths being below the five-year average. And a part of that uh, is because during this last winter, we have had a very, very low, um, some would say almost nothing, um, in terms of flu deaths, something that normally we do have uh, flu deaths during um, every winter. So, yes, there has been a big reduction uh, in, in flu deaths, uh, but I would have to say that um, certainly in the early part of this year, um, the levels of COVID deaths were way, way, way above mm. those that we would have expected um, in any um, flu season. But, but after a year of being glued to the data on deaths and after a few weeks of us all thinking about um, blood clots, especially with regards to the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, do you think that after this, most of us need to recalibrate our relationship with risk? I think... Um, I'm not quite sure what your question in terms of risk is actually asking, but I do think one of the, th the very good things that has come in the last year is a better understanding of statistics, a better data literacy, and alongside that, a better understanding of risk. And I think that's important. But my point was, I guess, are we, because we're paying closer attention to it, are we more easily spooked by things. I mean, just to take the, the, the blood clot issue um, as well. Um, instances of blood clots um, in the UK, in terms of people who've had the AstraZeneca vaccine, make up 0.000016% uh, of, of people, and, and yet there's lots of agitation about it. And you think, is that because we're, we're paying too much attention? Well, no, I think I mean, at the end of the day, as I, as I indicated previously, every death is a cause of great sadness. However, um, the advice that I have read from MHRA and everyone else is that the risks um, of not taking the, of not having the vaccine far outweigh those of having the vaccine. Yes. Elsewhere, away from the, the pandemic, of course, we've got the, the 2021 census um, upon us. I was just saying on the programme that uh, on my way back from work yesterday, I saw people in the in the purple tabards uh, knocking on doors, um, hurrying people along, reminding them to, uh, to return their census. Um, reminded that the importance of, of the census, first of all, for anyone who's... I mean, the census... Lou, what a great question. I mean, the census, we've been doing one every 10 years since 1801, it is the time when we, as a nation, stand up and say, this is who we are. On a moment in time, this is who we are. These are our characteristics, and um, we are proud of that. But that's not the only reason we do it. It is used enormously for planning right the way through um, the following years, uh, planning the number of schools that one needs, planning the number of hospitals that one needs, planning... Um, roads, planning, um, transport systems uh, for public transport, masses of different reasons that uh, we, we do a census. And um, it has been a real privilege to have worked with our public this time uh, in order to, to undertake this census, which 
is, I have to tell you, going incredibly well. What makes you say that? Well, because we have um, an, an estimate of the number of um, households there are in the country, uh, and we are able to say that the great majority, I mean, now over 90%, um, of households um, have uh, responded. Uh, and so it's looking really, really good. Um, and um, we have a very good idea um, of many of those that haven't yet responded because they will be, for example, second homes, which people have not been able to, to visit uh, recently to, to get their code. And we're expecting to pick those up uh, as people are, are able to visit mm. second homes as the restrictions over time uh, are relaxed. And, and in terms of the, the difference between now and 10 years ago, I wonder... Um, from your position, which question, uh, which set of answers are you most interested about hearing uh, from um, in 2021? Yeah, a really, really good question. I mean, one of the things that a census does that almost um, no other data at a national level does is collect information on occupation. And I think understanding those trends in occupation and what people are doing and how they are working is going to be incredibly uh, interesting. Um, it is also, I think, going to be really, really interesting to look um, at the, uh, if you like, household structure uh, of our country uh, and how that is uh, changing. One reads um, evidence about you know, people being more likely to have, if you like, moved um, back in with either back in with their parents or still to be living with their parents at relatively older ages. What's, this is the time that we get the real evidence uh, for that. And I think the important thing to remember about a census more than any other survey is that this is the one time when everyone in our population has a voice. And so we are able really to be inclusive and to be able to understand things about everybody in our population. How, how does the pandemic affect uh, the census this year? And I wonder in terms of uh, what people are reporting, is there not a worry that, that, that um, 2021, 2020 has, has been such strange, abnormal years that you might, that, that the picture that, that you're taking isn't necessarily a representative one, I guess, in terms of where people live, where, where people are living, what they're doing for their livelihood, um, it's, it's an odd year. It's um, also, therefore, incredibly important, I would submit, that we actually understand what is going on mm. um, because uh, we will be able to monitor that uh, as we um, move forward. Uh, and if we had not done a census, then we absolutely would never, perhaps, uh, have known um, uh, about that. The one thing I would say, I mean, clearly we have had to really think through um, the COVID security um, of our field force. And we've done that really, really, really carefully uh, to make sure um, that um, the, the COVID risk uh, to our field force and to people uh, in their households is, is totally minimised. Uh, yeah. And that has been uh, a great success. Also, in terms of this year's census, there was um, there was a debate. Well, there was even a court case over the question about uh, sex. And, and on the census this year, that there's a question now on uh, one on sex, one on one on gender identity. Originally, that the guidance was in terms of how people answer that the sex question was according to birth certificate, gender, gender recognition certification, 
or passport. Um, but, but in the end, the, the passport was, was taken off that. Um, what did you learn from, from that experience? Well, we've asked exactly the same question on sex that we've asked since 1801. Um, and um, we have um, listened to the um, views uh, uh, of the judge and we have um, ex- acceded to them. What do you make of the suggestion, though, that some people might not follow the guidance? You know, there's one charity in particular suggesting that people put down for sex what they feel to be the truth about themselves rather than what mm. uh, the guidance suggests uh, how you should answer the question. Well, I think, um, you know, uh, our... Um, evidence in the past and indeed now and let's remember this is the same question that's been asked at every census since 1801 um, is that people are very honest in the way that they respond uh, to questions uh, on the census um, and um, we trust uh, people uh, that they will do so um, honestly and um, properly. Also, uh, there's an issue over um, the way we use data in terms of how we reflect people in terms of race. The ONS set up an inclusive data review to try and try and look at how the data you collect is more inclusive, not just in terms of obviously the census, but in terms of um, data more widely. Why did you launch that review? Um, Because we believe very, very strongly that it is incredibly important that everybody in our society has a voice. Uh, and inclusion is, is a very broad topic. Um, and we wanted to bring together people from um, voluntary sector groups, people from academia, people uh, from who represented different groups and say, look, you know, are we collecting data which represent everyone in our society properly, firstly? Secondly, when we collect data, are we collecting data which are relevant to them? And thirdly, when we analyze data, are we doing so appropriately? Uh, And I just think it's incredibly important that we are the office for national statistics uh, and that those national statistics have to represent everybody in our nation. Everyone must Mm. have a voice. Uh, And I am really super impressed uh, with the work that that task force is doing under Dame Moira uh, Gibb uh, and I'm looking forward enormously to the report and to having the privilege to take forward the recommendations therein. And is it fair to say as some have suggested that at the moment there is there is still crucial gaps in data on the lived experience of specifically ethnic and religious minorities in, in the UK? Well I think that's one of the reasons for doing the um task force in the first place uh, and Luke the thing that I would say is that I, as I've already indicated I'll be looking very closely uh, at the results uh, of uh, the task force I'm privileged to want to, to be able to take forward the recommendations therein uh, and if those recommendations are around um, improving the way that one collects data mm. on lived experience then I can assure you we will do that. And in terms of the data you already have at hand about about life in the UK, I wonder what you made of the of the government's race and equalities review headed by Tony Sewell, the, the one that suggested that the UK should be seen as a, as an international exemplar of, of uh, racial equality. That, that very few inequalities are directly to do with race. They suggested. Well, I, I haven't got anything um, to say 
uh, on that particular report um, because um, our data do not really speak at this moment to um, that particular report. Even in terms of, of, of pay inequalities and things like that? Well, we we can say things um, about gender uh, pay inequalities and we are working hard to uh, improve the way that we do um, issues around um, ethnic pay inequalities, but I'm not able to hmm. give um, authoritative advice on that at the hmm. moment. I just finally want to ask you a question about the the, the future of what you do. Of course, the, the sense at the moment uh, now can, can uh, be done online for most people. And I, and I wonder, as you as you have more technology at, dis- at your disposal, what might happen in the next, I don't know, few years, few mm. decades in terms of what you're able to do um, at the ONS? Luke, that's a, re- Luke, a really, really important question. I mean, I, the first thing I would say is I do think that we as a society now expect that technology is used to be able to produce things faster. Yes. Um, you know, um, I don't think that, you know, you need to wait three months to find out, you know, the economy. You need you on Times Radio, and it would be a privilege to speak again uh, on the economy. You know, what, mm. what's going on today? So what the first thing that I see us doing is really improving the speed at which we do things and using technology and using ever more radical and ever more um, innovative data sources in order to be able to do that. We looked uh, a few years ago as to whether we needed to do a census in 2021. Um, And our judgment was that at that time, we didn't have the technology and the flows of data to enable a very rapid census to be able to be done without using the the method we're using now. However, what we agreed was that in 2023, we would make a recommendation as to whether we as a nation needed another traditional census or whether uh, we uh, we could put together an unbelievably exciting population um estimation process which would enable us to have almost potentially in real time estimates of the number of people in our population and about internal migration that's migration within the country and about um, scoring and things like that Mm. Uh, and that's what we are working hard on at the moment Um, and Luke it would be a privilege if you were to invite me back in a little while and we'll tell you uh, what the uh, progress is with that project. It's an incredibly important one. Um, And um, I couldn't tell you now whether the census we've just done will be the last one of its sort. Um, I know that it will be used incredibly uh, widely, but I can assure you that we're working very, very hard to be able to get an answer to the question, do we need another traditional census uh, and we do that in the context of what is the very best thing that our society our country needs but you say you you can't say at the moment whether this will be the last of its source last of its sort in terms of a census but it could be no, no typically when i do research luke um i don't quite know the answer is the well, i don't know what the answer is until i've actually done the research enough. at the moment we've got a team working flat out on that research but i'd be very happy to uh, let you be the first to know That was Sir Ian Diamond, who runs the Office for National Statistics. Now, the incredible story of one 
former police chief in the U.S. When, when I saw the video of um, the beating and the death of George Floyd, I was very moved by that because as a young boy, uh, I was viciously uh, assaulted and beaten up by four Detroit police officers. And I said that uh, that could have been me because of what happened with me. But being 14 years of age, screaming and crying to them as to why, why are you doing this? And all they did was they, they, they called me dirty names and they swore at me. And at some point they let me go. But I said, boy, that could have been me. But, but the thing was that that was video, which made a big difference. Hmm. And now what do you make of the, the coverage of the, of the trial of the police officer, Derek Chauvin, thinking, OK, that could, something like that could have happened to me back in the, what, 1950s, and then now we are yeah. talking about something relatively similar in the 2020s? What's happened is that, I mean, we're talking, what, 60 years, hmm. uh, 60-some years, that it's still happening. And the reality is that, unfortunately, when police officers, rogue police officers do those kinds of things, uh, it's very seldom that they're held accountable for this. And that's my fear with this this case. The Reverend Al Sharpton, of course, uh, uh, civil rights icon and uh, who's part of the uh, who's part of the legal team for the Floyd family, um, interestingly enough, during this trial, he outside of the courthouse the other day said, um, Derek Chauvin is in the dock, but America is on trial, such as the importance of, of what's happening there culturally for America. Yes. Do you yeah. agree with that sentiment? I absolutely agree because I think what we, what America has refused to do is accept the fact that there is systemic racism that exists now but has ex- existed for years and years and years. And what I've seen as a uh, young person, as a police officer, as a police chief, as a professor, as, uh, as a deputy mayor, I've seen these kinds of things continue to happen and no one's held accountable for that, unfortunately. Hmm. And so many young people have been beaten. So many have been killed, in particular minorities. And America t- tends to accept that and don't say that uh, uh, there, there, there's this problem that's existed for hundreds of years and, and uh, they accept it. Uh, hmm. And that, that's scary for me. Well, you, you mentioned your time as a young police officer. Take me back to um, 1967, because when there were the, the protests in the wake of what happened with George Floyd last year, lots of people were comparing them to the to the riots, the rebellion that happened in 67 in Detroit. You were, you were a young police officer during those. What was your experience of that as, as being a young black police officer in, in the middle of yes, that kind of a, rebellion? I a, yeah, I was a young police officer with uh, less than uh, two years on the Detroit Police Department. And the first day of the, the rebellion, uh, I was coming home, uh, and, and my, my apartment was in the heart of the action, I guess you would say. Mm. And as I was driving home, probably about one thirty or 2, 2 in the morning, I was pulled over by two white police officers. I was in uniform. I had my, my badge on, my shield, and they pulled me over, and they pulled, had their guns drawn. And I stepped out of the car and I said, police, police. And at that point, the older of the officer, the one with the, the, the brush cut and the gray hair, he made a derogatory name calling to me and told me that uh, tonight I was going to die. And it was as if time stood still. And every time I tell the story, I flash back to exactly what happened. I, I could literally see his finger pulling the trigger as... Um, uh, they started to shoot at me, and I dove back into my car and sped off. 
I don't know how many times they shot, but I remember I got back home. And, and you must have been wondering at the time, if they can do that to me, a colleague, what on earth must they be doing to black people who, you know, who they're meant to be there to protect? Civilians. Well, that's exactly, exactly. I, I've said that over and over again because, you know, I, I saw officers do things and stopped officers from doing things throughout my career to, uh, to black people, to Hispanic people, to poor people. Uh, because I thought it was, it became my quest to stop as many of these kinds of things from uh, happening as possible. But that's why I, I talked about the systemic racism. It continued to, throughout my entire career. In fact, when I was police chief, I was stopped while I was driving my police car, <laughs> the chief of police, and uh, this officer pulled me over, did not look me in the face, uh, <laughs> and he said, uh, you, you got a driver's license and registration. I said, yes, I do, officer. And I was looking at him and wondering where this was going to go to. <laughs> and uh, uh, he got, I handed him my driver's license and registration. He took it and walked back to his car. And as he got back to his car, he read my name. And I could see through the rearview mirror that his words were, oh, no, <laughs> and, uh, he came. He came back to the car, and he says, "Well, I'm sorry, sir." He says, "But I thought it was a stolen car," and I said, "Come on now, this is a known police car." But what you did was you you failed to number one look me in the face. Uh, but obviously, you have a problem. I, I um, gave him a strong reprimand. But those are the kinds of things that happened. And they continue to happen, Luke, in the United States of America. I don't know about the rest of the world. And even when you were in positions of power, even when you were the, the chief of police for Detroit, even when you were, were deputy mayor, how hard was it for you to get rid of those, the phrase we always hear, bad apples? It's, it's, it's very difficult because of the, the unions and the mindset of people who don't accept the fact that these kinds of things are, are existing and continue to exist because... Uh, I, I, if we remember last year, the former president, he was talking to a, a number of um, police officers in New York. And what he said to them was, well, when you're putting one of those people in a car, don't be so gentle as you push their heads into the car. Yes. Well, you know, it's like telling them it's OK to brutalize someone. And if the president's saying that, how many other people ex say that and accept that? for the reality of, of what's happening in, mm. in, in our country. And so someone who, who has spent their career trying to root these kind of bad bad officers, bad apples out of the police force, I wonder, what do you make of what you know of, of Derek Chauvin now? Well, what I saw was a man who had literally dehumanized George Floyd. He didn't, you know, when you do something like that, I mean, look, I was in Vietnam, I saw people die. I saw people die during the rebellion in 67, and throughout my long career as a law enforcement officer, I saw people die, but I never saw anyone die for almost 10 minutes as someone had their knee on his neck, and, and this man is screaming for help, and there was no, no remorse. There didn't appear to be any remorse from Chauvin. So this is the kind of person who shot at me. This is the kind of person who, uh, for years and years that I saw... Well, Listen, my, my first day as a Detroit police officer in 1965, I was at roll call. And um, I was the only black person 
at roll call out of approximately 30 people. Mm. And the, the sergeant and lieutenant, they were giving the roll call. At roll call, they were calling the names off for assignment. And so they got to the person that I was working with, who's white, and, and they called his name and my name. And I, again, I, I have to tell you exactly what they say. You, you, you'll have to bleep this out probably. Yeah. But uh, his, when they said my name and his name for assignment, Scott 2-7, his words were, Jesus, I'm working with him. This is at roll call. This yeah. is at roll call. And so... I mean, I rode with this man for eight hours, and he said nothing, absolutely nothing to me. But this was a, the norm, the standard for so many black officers uh, at the time. And I'm sure, and this is in Detroit, hmm. and I talked to officers from other communities around the United States of America, and the same thing was happening to them. And I wonder how, just finally, how how hopeful you are that the situation might actually change I'm hopeful, but what we have to do in the United States in particular is really be mindful of the kind of people that we're hiring into law enforcement. Secondly, we have to make sure that those people who are hired into law enforcement uh, are educated uh, because we have no national standard. There should be a national standard for law enforcement uh, across this country. Hmm. We have it with the FBI. We have it with Secret Service, but we don't have it for police officers. I mean, we have guys who are hired who have a GED, some probably didn't finish high school, but they have to interact with people and get to know what a community is like and make certain that everyone is held accountable. Those are so important. Those things are so important to, to what we have to do to make significant changes in law enforcement in the United States. Dr. Ike McKinnon, uh, former police chief of the Detroit Police. That's all we've got time for on the Red Box Politics podcast. Remember, you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts from. The Times Radio app is a good place to start. And remember, you can get the Red Box email every weekday morning if you're a subscriber to The Times. Thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe is how to become one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.